TED Audio Collective. Hi, TED Talks Daily listeners. I'm Elise Hugh. I'll be hosting this podcast, and I'm super excited to get started with something a little different this week. We are sharing on this podcast a series called TED Connects Community and Hope. They are timely conversations with TED speakers around the coronavirus pandemic. This one features author Elizabeth Gilbert in conversation with head of TED Chris Anderson. I found their talks so essential in this moment. They cover resilience in the face of anxiety, fear versus intuition, how to lean into curiosity and creativity, and how to handle the real feelings of loneliness and grief so many of us are struggling with right now. Also, I want to mention we just launched a new podcast with another speaker from this series, psychologist Susan David, who you heard last week. It's called Checking In with Susan David. Each week, she gives strategies that can help people cope with this moment, and which we hope will also be useful long after this difficult time passes. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Be kind to yourselves and stay curious. Support comes from Zuckerman Spader. Through nearly five decades of taking on high-stakes legal matters, Zuckerman Spader is recognized nationally as a premier litigation and investigations firm. Their lawyers routinely represent individuals, organizations, and law firms in business disputes, government, and internal investigations, and at trial, when the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com. Support for TED Talks Daily comes from Capital One Bank. With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. TED Talks Daily is brought to you by Progressive. Progressive helps you compare direct auto rates from a variety of companies so you can find a great one, even if it's not with them. Quote today at Progressive.com to find a rate that works with your budget. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Hey, Chris. Great to see you. How are you? Where are you? Are you who are you living with or staying with? What's up? I'm fine. I don't want to brag, but I'm in New Jersey. I'm by myself. I've got a little house out in the country and I've, I think I'm on day 17 of no human contact other than virtually. And I'm well. Wow. Well, so you're having a related experience to what so many people are having. I mean, these are days of isolation for many people and that brings with it lots of difficult emotions in a way. And I think it's probably good to dive straight in with the anxiety that I know a lot of people are feeling right now. So many reasons to be anxious, both for yourself, your loved ones, and just for this time and for the world and how we all get through this. I think you would have to be either a sociopath or totally enlightened not to be feeling anxiety at a moment like this. So I would say that the the first thing I would want to encourage everybody to do is to give themselves a measure of mercy and compassion for the difficult emotions that you're feeling right now. They're extremely understandable. I think sometimes 
our emotions about our emotions become a bigger problem. So if you're feeling frightened and anxious and then you're layering shame on top of that because you feel like you should be handling it better or you should be doing your isolation better or you should be creating more while you're alone or you should be serving the world in some better way, now you've just multiplied the suffering, right? So I think that the antidote for that, first of all, is just a really warm, loving dose of compassion and mercy towards yourself. The the second thing that I would say about anxiety is this, that um, here's what I think is the central paradox of the human emotional landscape that I'm finding particularly fascinating right this moment, and it's really come to light for me. So there are these two aspects of humanity that don't match, uh, hence the word paradox, but they're, they really define us. And the first is that there is no species on earth more anxious than humans. It's a hallmark of our species because we have the ability slash curse to imagine a future. And also, once you've lived on Earth for a little while, you have the experience to recognize this terrifying piece of information, which is that literally anything can happen at literally any moment to literally any person. And because we have these vast, rich, colorful imaginations, we can see all sorts of terrifying movies in our heads about all of the possibilities and all of the scariest things that could occur. And actually, one of the scariest things that could occur is occurring. It's something that people have imagined in fiction and imagined in science, and it's actually happening right now. So that's quite terrifying. The paradox is that in that level, we're very bad emotionally at fear and anxiety because we stir ourselves up to a very heated degree because of our imaginations about how horrible it can get. And it can get very horrible, but we can imagine it even worse. The paradox is that We're also the most capable, resourceful, and resilient species that has ever lived on Earth. So history has shown that when change comes to humanity, either on the global level like it's happening now or on the personal level, we're really good at it. We're really good at adaptation. And and I think that if we can remember that, it can help to actually mitigate the fear. And you can remember it in a historical perspective by looking at what humanity has gone through and what we have not only survived but figured out how to thrive through. And you can also look at it at a personal level where you can make an inventory of what you yourself have survived. And notice, as I often notice, my panic and my anxiety about the imagined future is is deadly on my nervous system. But I actually have discovered that when there's an actual emergency in the moment, I tend to be pretty good at it. And I think most of us are like that. And if you can also remember that resilience is our shared genetic and psychological inheritance, we are each and every one of us, no matter how anxious you feel you are, no matter how ridden by fear you feel you are, every single one of us is the genetic survivor of hundreds of thousands of years of survivors. Each one of us came from a line of people who made the next correct intuitive move survived incredibly difficult things and were able to pass their genes on. So almost at a biological level, you can relax into a trust that when the moment comes where you will be faced with the biggest challenge, you will be able to draw on a deep reservoir of shared human consciousness that will say, now it's time to make the next move and we can do this. You'll see that repeated in history in so many examples. I think about those heartbreaking and devastating phone messages that people were leaving for their loved ones from the towers on September 11th. And you can hear the calm 
the calm in people's voices, the biggest emergency ever was happening. And in that moment, intuition told them what to do. The important thing to do now is to make this phone call. And I think if you can trust that when the point of emergency actually arrives, you'll be able to meet it. And then when the world changes, you'll be able to adapt to it. It certainly helps me calm down. So you're living there by yourself, Liz, and uh, many others are in in that same circumstance right now. How do you handle loneliness in a situation like this when it's so alien to everything that we as a social species are usually about? We crave other people. We crave touch. We crave hugs. We want to be there with people. How can we avoid this being a period of crushing loneliness? I don't think you can avoid it, but I think you can walk toward it. And I think that for me, I've deliberately many times in my life gone off into isolation in order to face those things. This year I was in India and I spent 17 days alone with no contact with anybody, which was a weird practice run for what's happening right now. And I see, as I see people really losing it and and feeling like they're crawling out of their skin, either from anxiety, fear, boredom, anger, blame, loneliness, depression, you know, all of these things that come up when you are forced to just be in your own presence. I know all of those feelings because as a meditator, I've experienced all of those in stillness. The hardest person in the entire world to be with is yourself. And so the only way that I learned as a meditator to be able to survive and endure my own company was with universal human compassion toward me. And to recognize that this is a person who's suffering right now from loneliness and this person needs kindness from self towards self. What I, what I would suggest to people, and again, this takes a certain amount of resolve and it takes a certain amount of curiosity about learning more about the human experience. People are spinning away from that isolation because they're so terrified of it. I mean, constant Zoom meetings and constant parties online and constant interaction and all of that is lovely, but my, from a spiritual and psychological standpoint, from a creative standpoint, I would say if, if you have any curiosity about this, don't be in such a hurry to rush away from an experience that could actually transform your life. I think sometimes the experiences that can transform us the most intimately are the ones that we want to run away from the fastest. But there's a way that you can do it emotionally as well, and that is to walk with curiosity and with an open mind toward your most difficult and painful emotions without resistance and say, what is it like for a person to feel like they don't have something to do for an hour? (laughs) Um, And you can open up your compassion in that. There's so many lessons in compassion that can be found here. So let's, let's follow up on that word curiosity that you've used a few times there. I mean, a lot of wisdom that I've heard sort of thrown around online right now is this is a great time to follow your passion and, you know, dive deep into whatever it is you've most been wanting to do. I mean, in Big Magic, you made an argument that that following your passion isn't necessarily the wisest strategy. You you argued, no, don't do that. Follow curiosity. Yeah, you know, I've I've been on a personal crusade to rid the world of the word passion because I feel like as an instruction for people on how they should be living because... I know that in my case, it brings me nothing but anxiety. Purpose is another one that has become a cudgel that we use to bludgeon ourselves into thinking that we're not doing enough or that we're not doing life right or that you're supposed to be more useful and more productive. You're supposed to be changing the world. You're supposed to be uncovering some particular talent that only you have and with it, you're supposed to then transform everybody and monetize it. No pressure. 
I would like to replace it with a, a far gentler word. And I think curiosity is very gentle because the stakes are so much lower. The stakes of passion say you have to shave your head and move to India and, you know, get rid of all your possessions and, and start a, a startup. Like what, it's so, it's so intense. But curiosity is a very simple universal experience that causes you to want to look at something just a tiny bit closer. And you don't have to change your life around it. You just look. Um, and it might be taking a weekend to, to try something new for a little while. But if I could say one thing that I'm noticing is, is an obstacle right now, because I think a lot of people thought, oh, isolation, great. This is the perfect time for me to learn Italian and to take that calligraphy class and start writing that novel. And they find that they're actually sort of in a paralysis of anxiety and they're not creating anything or doing anything. First of all, again, like a blanket of mercy on you. These are hard times and it might take you a minute in your nervous system and in your mind to adjust to the new reality. But the second thing I would say is that when people are saying they're having trouble with their creativity because they're in isolation, I might daringly suggest that perhaps you're not in enough isolation. And by that, I mean, are you monitoring how much external stimulus you're bringing of this disaster into your home? So if you're sitting watching the news all day, what you're doing is you're bringing the disaster into your workspace, you're bringing it into your soul, you're bringing it into your mind, and you're going to create a tremendous, the opposite of a creative environment, an environment of fear, panic, and urgency. So I think if you're going to be a good steward of your creativity right now, you have to isolate a little bit from the news. But somehow in this moment, if you follow this journey of curiosity, if you walk towards some of the, the harder moments. Do you think that this actually can be a creative time for people if they're willing to do that? Absolutely. And I think it can be, and I don't think creativity in this case has to necessarily mean that you write the great American novel or um, start that business you always intended to start. It doesn't need to be so literal. We're going to be creating new worlds and new lives on the other side of this. And we're going to be doing that individually and we're going to be doing that collectively. I think of the the shoots of small trees that come, can only come up after massive forest fires, you know, where seed pods have to explode under great heat. We're in a kind of crucible moment right now. And I wouldn't begin to have the hubris to predict what sort of creativity will come. But if Look, if history is any measure, what we'll probably see is people at their best and people at their worst. <laughs> um, but I think we'll see more of people at their best because that's typically how it works. I mean, your, your model of how creativity happens is that it doesn't all come from within. It's not like you have to sit there saying, okay, this is my moment to be creative. Come on, be creative, be creative. It's, it, it, it involves fundamentally an openness to something coming to you. I think so. And I think, again, if you stop thinking about your self-isolation and your social distancing as quarantine, and you start thinking of it as a retreat, you'll find that you can't really tell the difference between quarantine and a retreat. You know, a lot of you out there have dreamed, I've heard you because I talked about going to India to an ashram for four months and God, I can't tell you how many people I've heard say, I wish I could do that. I'm like, well, you're, you got it. <laughs> and, and by the way, this is what it felt like. This is what it felt like, you know, to learn how to be present with yourself. And so for me, I've learned to hold my creative wishes lightly in that same way. I'm between books right now and I don't have an idea for a book and in the past, that would have made me really anxious. But now I know, take a lot of naps. 
<laughs> go for a lot of walks, do a lot of drawings. I'm doing like weird little art projects as I'm sitting here to like distract my mind. And I think if you can't think of what to do right now, I would suggest doing what you used to do when you were 10 years old that made you feel happy and relaxed. And that's often creativity and play. And for many of us who are anxious children, and I was an anxious child, we learned at an early age that we could sedate ourselves with um, our curiosity and with our play. And then usually around adolescence, the world taught us that there were faster and more immediate ways to bump out of that anxiety through sex or substances or, or distraction or workaholism or whatever we did to not have to sit with ourselves. And I think right now is a really good opportunity to, re you, were, you actually were on the right track when you were 10. So, you know, get some Legos. <laughs> Get some Legos, get some coloring books, just um, get your hands in the mud, do, do whatever it is that will actually ground you into this, again, to take you out of the futurizing and the future tripping that's going to cause you nothing but anxiety and not going to make you be of service. You know, there's such a thing too that I just want to touch on if I can for a minute about empathetic overload and empathetic meltdown. We're taught that empathy is a good thing. I would suggest that in a case this dramatic, what you want to talk about replacing empathy with is compassion. And the difference is extremely important. So compassion means I'm actually not suffering right now. You are. I see you're suffering and I want to help you. That's what compassion is. Empathy is you're suffering and now I'm suffering because you're suffering. So now we have two people suffering and nobody who can serve and nobody who can be of help. And if you knew how your empathetic suffering actually makes you into another patient who needs assistance, you would be more willing to dip into compassion. And what, what underlies compassion is the virtue of courage, the, the courage to be able to sit with and witness somebody else's pain without inhabiting it yourself so much that you become another person who is suffering. It's recognizing that if I feel your pain, I can't help you in your pain um, because now my pain has taken over me. And, and I think that sometimes I think all you need to do is know that and it makes you turn the shift, right? One of my favorite teachers, Byron Katie, says, my favorite thing about my suffering is that it isn't yours. My favorite thing about my suffering is that it isn't yours. My favorite thing about your suffering is that it isn't mine. So it will be eventually, we all take a turn suffering. You cannot move through this earth without it. When it's your turn, you'll know. <laughs> when it's not your turn, stay out of that field of somebody else's pain because you can't help them when you're in pain yourself. I think there's a beautiful healthiness that can come from being of service. And that's also how I've been medicating my anxiety through this is by showing up in ways that I can with whatever resources I've got. Here's what you have to keep in mind though. And this is what I keep reminding people. Right now in my own personal sphere, there is more need than I have resources to to fix. So I have to begin with that reality and I have to have the courage to sit in that reality soberly and acknowledge that that's the case. The second thing I think emotional sobriety would require of me right now is to recognize that this is going to be a marathon, not a sprint. I just think of this Indian proverb that I keep going back to, which is I store my grain in the belly of my neighbor. You know, Western capitalistic society has taught and trained us to hoard long before this long before this happened and people were hoarding toilet paper and canned goods, 
advertising and the whole capitalist model has taught us scarcity. It's taught us that you have to be surrounded by abundance in order to be safe. The disconnect between those who have and those who have not has never been bigger. This is the time to store your grain in the belly of your neighbor in a way that is emotionally sober and accurate to what you can give. And to look at that in a really honest way, to not put your own family in danger, to not put yourself in crisis, but to be able to say, what can I offer in the immediacy? And 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 then in the longer term, a conversation about redistribution of, of resources and why do so few have so much and why do so many have so little? And But that's not a conversation I can fix today. That's, again, outside of my realm of control. But what I can do is unleash the white-knuckled grip that I have on what's mine and make sure that I'm going into the world with an open hand. Again, not a, not a panicked open hand where I'm going to destroy myself to save somebody else because then there will be no helper left. But in, in a reasonable way, I cannot save everybody. I can save a few. Underlying all of that, undergirding all of that is a recognition that anything that I have to say about people who are in extraordinary suffering right now is not enough. Liz, talk to me a minute about anger. There are so many reasons to feel angry right now about what's going on. And part of me feels we, we should be, you know, that this is, that that's what anger is for. It's to, it's to highlight things that are unjust and unfair and that we must pay attention to. And yet part of me is honestly scared of it. I think there could be an eruption of anger that's dangerous, both personally and, and for society. Have you felt anger? What, what are you doing with it? Well, I feel anger at every White House press conference, and I think all all thinking people do. I feel angry that this wasn't taken more seriously early on. I feel angry at myself that I didn't take it more seriously early on. You know, as, as much as I feel contempt and disgust for uh, government officials who I feel were slow to recognize how serious this is, I also have to be really candid that three weeks ago, I was one of the people walking around saying, why is everybody overreacting to to this so much, right? Um, so I think that there are, we also have to own our own piece of that. And I think that righteous anger, which is the kind of anger that says a violation has occurred here, a humanitarian violation is occurring here, can be very stirring for transformation. Again, it's how comfortable can you be sitting with these extremely discomforting emotions? And what are you going to do with your anger? Are you going to lash mm. out at the people who you're quarantined with? Are you going to go on Twitter rants? Is that useful? Is that productive? And and so, again, I keep using the words emotional sobriety, but the the emotional sobriety that would be required is to feel that anger, acknowledge it, to show yourself mercy for how uncomfortable it is, and then to steadily recognizing again that this is a marathon, not a sprint, see what you reasonably can do to, to change the, the situation. I mean, the part of me that's constantly looking for the better narrative hopes that the anger we feel now can almost displace some of, I mean, the, the world's been an angry place for the last couple of years, there's been so much anger inflamed online. We've made each other angry, often probably un- unnecessarily outraged, sparking outrage and disgust, etc. I mean, is, is there any hope that this is a sort of massive societal shaking up? It's like people from all sides, we need each other. We just have to use this as a moment when we come together 
How do you think about that? Like, how do we turn some of these negative emotions into a force for good that at least gives us some permission to hope that something special comes out of all this? Well, I think you have to give yourself permission to hope. One thing that I'm noticing that I'm like a little bit amused by is that when people start predicting what the post-pandemic world is going to be, I, I notice that their predictions seem to be suspiciously in exact alignment with their personal worldview. <laughs> So um, my friends who are utopians are are already, you know, living in this utopian future where, you know, this is going to be the big change. My friends who are dystopians are already predicting, you know, that this is the official beginning of the police state and the new, the, the disastrous new world order. Yeah, I think there's a lot of hubris in, in trying to imagine what that new world could be. A, a quote that I love that a friend of mine always says is when people aren't busy being the worst, they're the best. And I think that gives me hope. And and it's true the other way too. When people are busy being the best, they're the worst. <laughs> um, but on the individual level, what I understand is that the only world that any of us are ever going to live in is this one. And so minding this and learning how to calm this, how to open this, how to get on the other side of the emotions that are causing harm to you and others is that's my work, you know, personally yeah. and, you know, whatever role I have in the public sphere. Um, I have a 20-year-long practice of writing myself every day a letter from love. Now, this may not feel concrete. It may feel very airy. But what it does is that it helps me through my anxiety. And I need it every single day because I'm anxious every single day. So 20 years ago when I was going through a very bad divorce and a depression, I began this tactic. And the tactic is that I will sit down with a notebook and I will write to myself, from myself, a letter from love. And what I mean by love is not romantic love. It's the infinite, bottomlessly merciful source of all human compassion. And every single one of these letters begins the same way. It's a dialogue. It starts with me saying, I need you, and love saying, I'm right here. And then I say what I'm going through. I'm really angry right now. I'm terrified. I'm spinning. I can't sleep. I'm anxious. And then I just allow to come through my hand, whatever, if you could imagine the most loving, compassionate, merciful voice in the world, if they were in the room with you, what would you want them to say? And you say that to yourself. Liz, um, you can say no to this, and it may be a totally inappropriate thing to ask, but you don't happen to have a letter from the last day or two that you consider reading, um, all or in part of? I don't know how long they are. You're putting me on the spot, but let me see what we've got. Uh, okay, so here's one. So I, I was panicking because I, I want to offer my apartment in New York to a woman who's a COVID-19 nurse who's volunteered to come into New York City to help. And I'm afraid that I'll infect my neighbors if I let her come and stay there. So I was up in the middle of the night thinking, ethically, is it, is it appropriate for me to, to do this? So I wrote, I need you. And love said, I'm right here. And and then I said, I want to offer that COVID-19 nurse my apartment, but I'm afraid that my neighbors will get infected and I'm scared and I don't know what the right move is. Help me. And Love said, I don't actually know what the right answer to that is, but I'm with you. And I said, but what do you think I should do? And Love said, why don't you just sit with me right here for a minute and be with me and know that you're held no matter what, that you cannot make the wrong choice, that it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. You're my beloved I've got you. I can see how much you're spinning. I can see how tired you are. And it doesn't matter to me whether you make this decision in the next minute, in the next day, or not at all. I'm with you, 
and I'll sit with you through this entire thing and I'll love you no matter what you decide to do at the end of this. I will be just as much with you at the end of this decision as I am with you now. And then um, I'll say, I said, so what do you think I should do? (laughs) And love says, I think you should go get a glass of water and I think you should lay down and get some rest and we'll talk about it some more in the morning, right? What I've found over the years of writing myself these letters from love is that love never gives advice. This is actually really good for all of you who love to give unsolicited advice to people. Love never gives advice beyond, why don't you get a glass of water? Why don't you rest? Why don't you, we'll try this again tomorrow. You know, you're doing your best. This is a hard time and I've got you. So that's like, I've got 20 years of those those journals and I'm assuming that I'm going to need it for the rest of my life. <laughs> wow. That was, I think I'm done. I can't ask any more after that. Liz Gilbert, you're, you're really, you're really phenomenal. You've, you've just got this unique way of articulating what, what others can't articulate. And I think you've brought all of us to a very tender, intimate place. And and thank you for that. Thank you, Chris. Take care of yourselves, everybody. And, um, we're right here with each other through this. We can do this. (laughs) Thank you, Liz. Goodbye. Bye bye. 